One of the most known facts about the ministry of Jesus is that there was an occasion when he cleansed the temple by driving out the money changers. That is probably one of the most known facts about the ministry of Jesus. Even many unbelievers, non-Christians, know about that event. One of the least known facts about the ministry of Jesus is that there were actually two occasions when Jesus cleansed the temple by driving out the money changers. Jesus cleansed the temple on two different occasions during his ministry. In our ongoing study through Mark's gospel, we come this morning to the text that tells us about the second time Jesus cleansed the temple. But before we look at that, by way of introduction, I want us to look at the first time he cleansed the temple. And that is recorded for us in the Gospel of John, chapter 2. So before we turn to Mark 11, please turn with me over to the Gospel of John, chapter 2. The cleansing of the temple recorded here in John 2 is a different event than the cleansing of the temple recorded in Mark's gospel. John deals with the first cleansing of the temple. Matthew, Mark, and Luke deal with the second cleansing of the temple. The first cleansing of the temple angered the Jewish religious leaders of the day. The second cleansing of the temple infuriated them to the point of planning the execution of Jesus. The first cleansing of the temple started the ministry of Jesus in Jerusalem. The second cleansing of the temple ended, for all intents and purposes, the ministry of Jesus in Jerusalem because it led to his death just a few days later. It was the last straw. The Jewish leaders were not going to put up with Jesus any longer. So they plotted to kill him, and they carried it out just a few days later. But there's a sense in which this confrontation started. It began here in John chapter 2 with the first cleansing of the temple. Just before jumping into these verses in the middle of John chapter 2, let me give you an overview of the chronology of the early days of Jesus' ministry. As I said, this, this, was a, this, in a sense, was the starting point of his ministry in Jerusalem. Not his ministry in general, but in Jerusalem. So let's just back up and kind of get the big picture. The ministry of Jesus technically began when John the baptizer baptized Jesus. That was the, his inauguration into the public eye. That is mentioned in the previous chapter of John's gospel, chapter 1. Then Jesus went out into the wilderness for 40 days. From there, Jesus went back to Perea, which was the location of John the baptizer's ministry. It was there that Jesus acquired some of his disciples. That's where John picks up the story in chapter 1, verse 19 of his gospel. From chapter 1, verse 19... Through chapter 2, verse 11, and we have a chapter break in there, but that really is a unit because there in that section, John records a week in the life of Jesus. That week culminates at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. It was there Jesus performed his first miracle, turning water into wine. 
That is recorded for us here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. It's really fascinating to contemplate these time elements in the Gospel of John. Consider this. Chapter 1, verse 19 through chapter 2, verse 11, as I just mentioned, is one week in the life of Jesus. Chapters 1 through 5 cover approximately one year of his ministry. Chapter 6 is pulled out of a two-year ministry period of Jesus, which means John devotes only one chapter to a ministry phase of Jesus that lasted over two years. That's probably because the other Gospels record that phase so thoroughly. The great Galilean ministry is told about immensely in Matthew, quite a bit in Mark, somewhat in Luke. And since John was the last gospel written, he had those others. He knew they covered that material. So he only gives one chapter to the great Galilean ministry of Jesus that lasted over two years. Then chapters 12 through 20 of John's gospel cover just 16 days. Chapters 13 through 19 cover just 24 hours. Now think about that. One-third of this entire gospel, the gospel of John, one-third deals with only 24 hours in the life of Jesus. So that gives you the big picture of John's gospel. As we look this morning at chapter 2, verses 12 through 22, we are looking at an event that took place about six months after the baptism of Jesus and about three months after Jesus had acquired his first disciples. So with that, all that as background, let's look at the first cleansing of the temple very early on in the ministry of Jesus, the event that sort of inaugurated his ministry in Jerusalem. And John tells us in verse 12, After this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. This verse opens with the words, after this. That is a reference to the first miracle of Jesus, which was turning water into wine. That took place in Cana of Galilee. This verse tells us that Jesus left there to go home, and he went to Capernaum. That's an interesting statement. Because you see, the hometown of Jesus was actually Nazareth. That's where he grew up. But he used Capernaum as the home base for his ministry, which is why John mentions this important detail. He is letting us know that Jesus has relocated. It's very likely that one of the reasons Jesus moved from Nazareth to Capernaum, in addition to the fact that Nazareth rejected him and tried to kill him, was also so that Jesus could be closer to his disciples. That way the disciples would not have to leave their homes for a while. Most of the disciples lived near Capernaum. So after his first miracle in Cana of Galilee, Jesus moved the headquarters of his ministry to Capernaum. It's interesting that verse 12 says he went down to Capernaum from Nazareth. Actually, Capernaum is about 20 miles northeast of Cana, but there is a, a huge decline in elevation, which is why the verse is worded this way. Notice who went with Jesus. John tells us here, his mother, brothers, and disciples. The brothers mentioned here would have been subsequent children born to Joseph and Mary. Mary was not a perpetual virgin, as some would claim. 
Joseph and Mary had children. Mary was a virgin when she conceived Jesus. Mary was a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus. But afterwards, she and Joseph had sexual relations and produced other children. That's what verse 12 is talking about when it refers to the brothers of Jesus. Someone who is noticeably absent from this verse is Joseph. He was also absent from the wedding feast in the early verses of this chapter. It's very likely that Joseph died before Jesus ever turned 30 years of age. He is not mentioned in the Gospels as far as being a part of the ministry of Jesus. There are occasions where they say, is not this the son of Joseph? But he's not actually mentioned as being alive, which could explain why Jesus entrusted Mary to the care of John as Jesus was dying on the cross. Whatever the case, Joseph is not mentioned here in verse 12 when Jesus went to Capernaum. From the best we can tell, Jesus was there for about three months when the Passover came around. That's why the end of verse 12 says they did not stay there many days. So three months go by, and then verse 13 tells us, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. The Passover was the greatest of all the Jewish feasts. About two and a half million Jews traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate the grace of God in the exodus from Egypt. In fact, by Jewish law, every male within a 15-mile radius of Jerusalem was required to go to the city for the celebration. So this was a key time for Jesus to break onto the scene in Jerusalem. Verse 13 says, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Again, the issue is not geography, but topography. Jerusalem is actually south of Capernaum, way south of Capernaum, but it sits up on a hill. The Jews saw Jerusalem as the great spiritual mountain. So regardless of where you are in Israel, the Bible almost always says you go up to Jerusalem, whether you come from the north, south, east, or west. So Jesus made this journey at Passover to break onto the religious scene in Jerusalem. Interestingly enough, three years later to the day, Jesus would be killed on Passover. So we're told in verse 14, He found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. Since we live in a different era, a different time, a different culture, it's hard for us to relate to what's going on here. Whenever the Jews went to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, they offered sacrifices. Not only that, every Jew over 19 was required to pay a temple tax. Therefore, this service was set up to assist the travelers. The sale of cattle and doves and the privilege of exchanging money were permitted in the temple court as a convenience for pilgrims who would need animals for sacrifice and temple shekels for their dues. So the animals, please understand this, the animals and the money changing weren't the problem. It was the corruption of these things that angered Jesus. Listen as one man describes the circumstances. Quote, Every Jew over 19 was required to pay a temple tax which could only be paid in Galilean or sanctuary shekels, hence the need for money changers. The corruption, however, was not in the system, 
but in the exorbitant rate these unscrupulous financiers charged. Adding to the corruption was the way the sacrifices were approved. A fee was charged to inspect all animals brought to the temple for sacrifice. Most of the time, the inspectors found the animal blemished in some way, disqualifying it as a legitimate offering. This forced the out-of-town traveler to purchase an approved animal at the temple for often 10 to 20 times the fair market value. No wonder Christ was enraged, end quote. Barclay put it this way, what enraged Jesus was that pilgrims to the Passover who could ill afford it were being fleeced at an exorbitant rate by the money changers. It was a rampant and shameless social injustice, and what was worse, it was being done in the name of religion, end quote. That was the problem. Sacrificial animals were being sold as a cover-up to make huge profits. Now, you know as well as I do that people have always used religion to make money. But Jesus was not going to allow this to go on in the temple. So verse 15 tells us, When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the money changers' money and overturned the tables. Jesus is extremely angry at this point. He is not out of control, but he is angry. The Greek text makes it clear that this whip was not only used for the animals, but also for the people. He literally drove them out. And verse 16 tells us, And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. And when the disciples saw Jesus driving out these animals, when they, I'm sure, were somewhat shocked at what he was doing here, I mean, they just barely knew this guy, and they see this event taking place, and as they saw Jesus driving out the animals and the money changers, the disciples began to remember a scripture passage, a verse. Verse 17 tells us, Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up, or zeal for your house will eat me up. That verse is found in Psalm 69.9. Psalm 69, it's very clear if you go back and read it, it's a messianic psalm. That is a psalm about the coming Messiah. And the disciples realized that those words applied to Jesus. This would have further convinced the disciples that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. By the way, the best translation of verse 17 is, because I know we have a lot of different English translations, the best is zeal for your house will eat me up. It's a future tense. And this has reference to something external, not internal, which is why most translations render it, zeal for your house will consume me. In other words, zeal for your house, God, zeal for your house, Father, is eventually going to consume me. It's eventually going to destroy me. It's eventually going to get me in trouble, which is exactly what happened. The zeal for God's house eventually led to the death of Jesus. Now you could say there were a lot of things that, from a human standpoint, prompted the death of Jesus. But one of them, at the very root, 
At the very core is this issue, zeal for God's house. The fact that Jesus cleansed the temple at the early point of his ministry, at the end of his ministry, led to his destruction. It led to his death. That's what verse 17 is saying. Verse 18, so the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us since you do these things? As I'm sure you know, the Jews were always looking for a sign from Jesus. Always. And the amazing thing about it is that no matter how many miracles Jesus performed, no matter how many signs he gave them, they still never believed. We've seen this so many times in our series through Mark's Gospel. Regardless of how many signs Jesus performed, the Jews always had an excuse to reject it, a way to get around it. They were never satisfied. They always wanted more signs. And that is why eventually he said no more signs, no more signs except one, the sign of the prophet Jonah, which of course was the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 1.22 says, Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. And we see that right here at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. Verse 18, the Jews said, What sign do you show to us? Since you do these things, Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Notice the certainty of Jesus' statement here. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. To me, that is an incredible reality. Jesus had the power to raise himself from the dead. Over in John 10, verse 18, he said this, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. That's exactly what he's saying here in verse 19. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. We know from verse 21, which we'll see in just a moment, that Jesus is speaking of the resurrection of his body, but to the Jews, this was a ludicrous statement. I mean, you can't imagine how bizarre this would have sounded to them because they took this as a reference to the temple complex. Verse 20 tells us that. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? They were right. The temple complex had been under construction for 46 years by this time, and it would be another 30 more before completion. We know from historical records over 18,000 workers were involved in the task of not just the temple proper, but the temple complex, what we call today the Temple Mount and all the buildings on it. So you can see why they were flabbergasted when Jesus said this. Destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. What are you talking about, Jesus? 18,000 workers over 46 years, and we're still barely halfway done. Who do you think you are? It's interesting to note that the Jews would never forget this statement of Jesus. Never. They used this statement against Jesus at his trial, and they threw this statement of Jesus, they threw this at him actually during his crucifixion. For example, in Matthew 26, 59 through 61, it says this. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward, and they said, 
This fellow, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. Of course, that's not exactly what he said. But it's just fascinating to me that they never forgot this statement and they used it against him. Even when he was hanging on the cross, there were some people who threw this statement at him, jeering at him. Matthew 27, 39 and 40 tells us, those verses tell us, and those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. That's from Matthew 27. John 2 and Matthew 27 are three years apart. But the Jews never forgot this particular statement of Jesus. I don't know how many heard this statement on this occasion, but it's obvious that however many heard it, spread it. I mean, word got out. This was the word in town, if you will. This was the, the word about town. Oh, there's this guy who claims he can destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. He's obviously out of his mind. He's obviously incapable of clear thinking. I mean, this was a big deal to the Jewish people that Jesus made this claim. But Jesus knew what he was doing. He knew where this would eventually lead. He knew where all of this would go. Verse 21 tells us, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus has said. Don't you like John's honesty here? He basically says, you know, we didn't put it all together until after the resurrection. We heard him say this too. We didn't really know what he was talking about. It was after the resurrection that all of a sudden it came together in our minds. We were there. We didn't grasp it at the time. We didn't even know what he was talking about. It wasn't until after the resurrection that they knew what Jesus meant by this statement. Here's another interesting facet of verse 22. Notice that the scripture and the words of Jesus are placed on an equal plane here in verse 22. It says they believe the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. They believe the scripture. That's a reference to Hebrew scripture, the Old Testament. Statements about the Messiah, that he would not see corruption. He would be raised from the dead. So they believe the scripture and the word of Jesus. Now look at how John puts those on the same plane. When Jesus spoke, his words carried the same authority as scripture. In fact, if you take the opening story of this second chapter and then this story and put them side by side, which John does, you see a very fascinating portrait or picture of Jesus. In Cana of Galilee, that's the early part of chapter 2, in Cana of Galilee, when Jesus turned water into wine, he demonstrated his, his power as the creator. In Jerusalem, now that's a long way south, way far away from Cana, in Jerusalem, when he cleansed the temple, he demonstrated his authority as the Messiah. So John, here in chapter 2, has given us two very powerful pictures of Jesus. One, turning water into wine, demonstrating his power as creator. Another, cleansing the temple, demonstrating his authority as the Messiah. John wants us to understand Jesus is the creator God 
He already said that in chapter 1 of his gospel. And he is the promised authoritative Messiah. So this was the first cleansing of the temple. When Jesus did this, there's a sense in which the religious leaders of the day said, Jesus, if you ever do that again, we will see to it that you are destroyed. If you ever do that again, we will see to it that you are executed. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus did cleanse the, cleanse the temple again, and it was even far more harsh the second time. Just a few days after that, the religious leaders saw to it that he was executed by the Roman officials. So with all that as background, let's look at the second cleansing of the temple in Mark chapter 11. In our ongoing study through Mark's gospel, we come to chapter 11, verses 12 through 19. Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 12. Mark tells us, now the next day, now remember the next day after what? Well, last week we looked at the triumphal entry recorded in verses 1 through 11. Now the next day, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. So they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. When evening had come, he went out of the city. Keep in mind, this was just a few days before Jesus was crucified. His final week began with the triumphal entry, as we saw last week in verses 1 through 11. He presented himself as the king of Israel, and he backed it up by this demonstration of authority. That's one way to look at these two events. He comes into Jerusalem as the king, presenting himself as the king, and he doesn't just present himself, he backs it up with a demonstration of authority. As the king, he had the authority to set things in order in the temple, which is exactly what he did. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he went into the temple and looked around, but did not do anything at that point. Do you remember that from last week? If you look at chapter 11, as John closes out, the, I mean Mark closes out the triumphal entry, it says in verse 11, And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So the triumphal entry takes place. He goes across the Kidron. He goes into Jerusalem. And he goes into the temple. Things are sort of dying down. He leaves, goes back across the Kidron to Bethany, where it seems he spent every night of his final week. He didn't do anything. That 
that on that evening when he looked around, but the next day he headed back into Jerusalem to cleanse the temple. He didn't do it the night before, probably because things were already winding down or had already shut down for the day. Therefore, he waited until the next day when the buying and the selling would be at its peak. But on the way, an interesting event took place, which we won't really consider until next Sunday, until the next message. But Mark sort of puts the cleansing of the temple inside of these two bookends. And so he sort of is sort of giving us a little bit of a, a taste of what's coming in the story. He says in verse 12, Now the next day when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And the disciples heard it. Now at that point in the story, Mark pauses. The fulfillment of this curse is down in verse 20, or verses 20 and following. So we're going to wait until the next message to explain what's going on here. Because Mark is just sort of giving us a little you know, foreshadowing. But we want to focus instead on the cleansing of the temple. And that is what he mentions in verse 15. So they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. That's an interesting fact that Mark adds. And, and in fact, I would say this. If you really want the full picture of this second cleansing of the temple, you have to read Matthew's account, Mark's account, and Luke's account. Because they all say, you know, the same thing, that it happened, but they all add, they each add different details. And this is a unique detail in Mark's gospel. He would not allow anyone even to carry wares to the temple. That is, you get the impression that people who were carrying all this merchandise and who were coming up the probably the southern steps of the temple, into the temple, and starting to carry it across to where they set up. It's almost as if Jesus was standing there like, no, 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 you're not coming here. You're not even passing through here. I'm not even letting you come into the area. I mean, this, is a, this is a unique picture of Jesus. This is not the way we picture Jesus. We think of him saying his own, by his own admission, I am meek. I am lowly of heart. I am gentle. I am humble. And yet here you have, him driving out, you have him driving out the money changers and almost standing guard saying, you're not bringing anything here. You're not bringing it through, even taking it through to some other place. And so Mark tells us what Jesus did here. And it's extremely important that we understand why Jesus did what he did on this occasion. Please understand... He didn't drive out the animals and the money changers and overthrow their tables because what they were doing was inherently wrong. No. No. As I mentioned earlier, whenever the Jews went to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, they offered sacrifices. Not only that, every Jew over 19 was required to pay a temple tax. Therefore, this service was set up to assist the travelers. The sale of animals and doves and the privilege of exchanging money were permitted in the temple court as a convenience for pilgrims who would need animals for sacrifice and temple shekels for their dues. So again, I say the animals and money changing weren't the problem. It was the corruption of these things that angered Jesus. 
That was the problem. Sacrificial animals were being sold as a cover-up to make money. Well, to fleece people. Not just make money, to fleece people. Now, the reason why I stress this point is because it is not uncommon for God's people to assume that any buying or selling of things in the temple complex was forbidden by Jesus. Then, those same well-meaning Christians will make the application that buying or selling of things in the church on Sunday is displeasing to Jesus. In other words, there are many Christians who use this incident in the life of Jesus, in the ministry of Jesus, to say that a church should never offer books or tapes or CDs or other resources for people to acquire on Sundays. They say that is corrupting God's house. For one thing, the church building isn't God's house like the temple was. But even more significant is the fact that Jesus wasn't angered because there was buying and selling going on in the temple complex. He was angered because the people who were doing these things were supposed to be providing a service for people, not fleecing them out of their money because they had them bent over a barrel. Providing the service was a good thing because it was very difficult for people to bring their sacrificial animals on a long journey to Jerusalem if, in fact, they had to travel a long way. And money changing was needed since the Roman coins and other forms of currency could not be used by people to pay their temple tax or to give their temple offerings. So they had to exchange the money if they wanted to pay the temple tax or give an offering. So there was nothing wrong with the service being provided. What was wrong was how the money changers and the animal providers were taking advantage of the people. That becomes clear by what Jesus says in the next verse. Verse 17, Then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves? Notice that last phrase of Jesus' statement. You have made it a den of thieves. Thieves, some translations, uh, robber's den. That was the problem. The animal providers and money changers were charging excessive rates, ten times the amount, and basically robbing the people because they knew the people had no alternative but to use their services. That's what infuriated Jesus. Had they simply provided the people a beneficial service, that would have been acceptable. You could even say that it would have been commendable. But that's not what was going on. The corrupt commercialism changed the whole atmosphere of the temple complex. Instead of being a place where people came to pray and worship of God, instead of becoming a place where people came to pray and worship God, it had become a place where people came to shop for the best bargain to minimize how much they would be cheated. I mean, think about it. If you know this is going on and you're trying to at least be responsible with your money, then you're going to go in all around all the different stations there to find out how you're going to be robbed less. And that was nauseating to Jesus. He couldn't stand it. So as he had done before, he drove out the buyers and the sellers and the money changers. Now, he knew his actions would be challenged, which is why he quoted Scripture as his authority here 
in verse 17, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. That statement is actually a combination of two verses from Hebrew Scripture. Isaiah 56, 7 says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. And Jeremiah 7, 11 asks the question, Has this house, which is called by my name, become a, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Those were the two passages that came to the mind of Jesus as he looked around and saw all this extravagant commercialism dominating the temple complex, and especially the court of the Gentiles, which was the only place Gentiles were permitted to pray. Keep that in mind when you view this. The only place where Gentiles were permitted to pray was the court of the Gentiles, and it seems, if you compare all the accounts, that that is the exact place where all of these business people set up their commercialism. And you better believe it was by design, on purpose. If they're wanting to do something, not only to make money, they're also wanting to keep Gentiles away. So set it up in the court of Gentiles where they can't get in to pray. And that's why in this statement it's significant that the quote is, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, for all peoples, not just for Jews. So in a sense, you could say there were two wrongs going on here. One, all the crass commercialism, but also putting it in a place where it would restrict the Gentiles from being able to come to pray. And this, this, this was too much for Jesus. This infuriated him. So even though he knew from a human standpoint this would cost him his life, he cleansed the temple of all this activity. The holiness of God was paramount in his heart and mind. He wanted to make sure that there in the temple complex, the main thing remained the main thing. He wanted to make sure that the focus of the temple was prayer and worship and instruction and ministry. But this was the last straw with the religious leaders who profited from all this corrupt commercialism. This was it. You know from our study of Mark's gospel that for a long time now they've been wanting to get Jesus. They've been plotting, they've been thinking, they've been planning, but this sort of, this, this drove them to the, to the edge where they said, that's it, we wanted to get him, now it's, it's do or die. We're going to make it happen. They were bound and determined to end his life as quickly as possible, and let me tell you, it was fairly quickly because it was just a few days. Verse 18 says, And the scribes and the chief priests, they were the ones, by the way, over the temple. They were over all of this. They were the ones who profited from this. The scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. And when evening had come, he went out of the city. That's an interesting statement. They're trying to figure out how to destroy him, but Jesus just goes on with business as usual. He knows he's on a divine timetable. His death isn't going to happen a day sooner than the Father has planned for it to happen. It will happen at Passover because he was and is the Passover lamb. So he just goes out of the city, back to Bethany, and the next day he comes right back into Jerusalem. 
He's just doing this on his final week, back to Bethany, back into the temple to cleanse it, to teach for his final days. It's interesting to note that here in this passage, Jesus still refers to the temple as God's house. He quotes, my house shall be called a house of prayer. But by the time you get to Matthew 23, God has moved out. The temple is no longer God's house. Look at Matthew 23 as we close this morning. Go back to Matthew's gospel, the 23rd chapter. The cleansing of the temple is recorded a couple chapters earlier in Matthew's gospel. It's in Matthew 21. So here we are just a couple chapters later. And it can only be a few days later, a couple days later, a day or two later, because we know that this event leads to his death at Passover. And yet, interesting, look at what is stated in verse 37. Matthew 23, verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. This is Jesus speaking. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, behold, your house. Don't miss that. Your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus cleansed the temple in an attempt to reestablish it as God's house. But since the Jewish leaders didn't want that, God simply moved out. God moved out. In essence, God said, here, you can have it. Your house is left to you desolate. God moved out and the Jewish religious leaders didn't care. Not only did they not care, a few days later, They murdered the perfect, sinless Messiah, Son of God. Beloved, it's very easy for us to allow the same kind of thing to happen in our lives. What I mean is, it's very easy for us to allow the main thing not to be the main thing. Oh, we may not go as far as the animal sellers and the money changers, but our lives can easily become dominated by things that are not the main thing. So I urge you this morning, look at your life as I look at my life and ask the question, is the Lord and his purposes, is the Lord the dominating factor in your life or have you allowed other things to move in and consume you? Is your life cluttered by a lot of competing interests or is the main thing still the main thing? Let's pray together. As we bow our heads in closing prayer, Just one final note or one final word. I close by asking us to evaluate our lives to see if the main thing is the main thing. And that is a question that all of us as the people of God ought to ask ourselves regularly. But I don't want to assume that everyone present here this morning is part of the people of God or is a child of God. It's very likely that in a crowd this size there are those who do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And if that is you, or if there's any doubt in your mind, then I urge you not to dismiss that, but rather, rather deal with that issue, address the issue. Humble yourself before God as a little child, like Jesus described 
humble yourself, and in simple childlike faith, receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Let go of whatever might be holding you back and receive Jesus Christ by faith. Father, as we close our time together this morning in your word, we are challenged by this portrait of Jesus because it's not usually how we think of him or how we assume he was because we know by his own admission, his own description, he was gentle and he was humble and he was meek and yet there were occasions when righteous anger displayed itself. Zeal for your house. It was zeal for your house that eventually destroyed him because his zeal for your house drove him to do what he did on this occasion, rightly so. It it compelled him to do this, and it resulted, from a human standpoint, in his death, as the religious leaders had had enough and ended his life just a few days later. Father, as we think about his example, it's a challenge to us to think about what consumes us, what is our focus, is the main thing the main thing. And in closing, we pray for anyone here among us who doesn't know you, Father, as, as Father, who doesn't know the Lord Jesus personally as Lord and Savior. May your Spirit work in that person's heart, in that person's life, to draw him or her to the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.